right, come on in. Good evening, everyone. Uh, we're having kind of a joint class this evening of our confirmation kids, as well as our adult class, um, for multiple reasons. Um, one of them, because some of our teachers are sick or have sick little ones, um, but also because this is one of the classes that I wanted to, to specifically talk to the confirmation kids, as well as the adults on. And since we're canceling class next week, there is no class next week. Um, because a lot of our teachers, Katie, myself, and Josh included, are going to be headed to Indianapolis. Um, and just to get you guys ready for Thanksgiving, there'll be no classes for the adults next week either. Um, so I figured this would be a great opportunity for us to get everybody kind of together. Um, the big thing I would ask, um, so we are live streaming class uh, for the kids that uh, are coming in for the confirmation class. So kind of behave. Um, we are going to have some time for questions and answers if you want to as well. Um, but also, you probably noticed that we've got cameras there in the back. Um, every year, the diocese does a uh, video for the Archdiocesan Catholic Appeal. Um, and so this year, they're going to get some B-roll footage, which means they're pretty much going to just kind of go around. They aren't there. Don't look at them. Just pay attention up here. Um, they're just kind of here to get some um, photos of people um, uh, really in class. So that'll be going on. Tonight we are, though, um, focusing on the sacrament of reconciliation. And so let us begin with prayer. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you praise and thanksgiving for this day. We thank you for the many gifts that you give us in our lives, especially for those gifts that we don't see, that we don't witness to every moment of our lives. We thank you for the great commission that you gave to the apostles to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and for the descent upon the apostles in the upper room of the Holy Spirit, giving them the ability to forgive sins. And so we come before you this night, Father, thanking you for these great gifts of the sacraments of initiation that you have given to us in our lives and you've begun through our baptism and will be completed with the sacrament of confirmation. Be with us this night. Help us to do everything for your greater glory. We ask all these things in your son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I haven't taught the confirmation class yet, so you guys aren't quite used to um, kind of the, the teaching style. It's pretty much the way that I preach. Um, so very dynamic, very kind of out loud, walking back and forth. But I wanted specifically to talk to you guys about the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Because I don't know about you, but for me growing up, as I've mentioned many times at Mass, it was the one sacrament that I didn't like to participate in. Um, but I've learned over time, a, as a priest, but also in my own journey of faith as a Catholic, that it is one of the most important sacraments for us in our lives. Outside of the Eucharist, outside of baptisms, in our life, it is one of the most important sacraments that we have. That it's not just a sacrament of initiation, but it's a sacrament that throughout our life helps us to be able to respond to God's grace. Now remember at baptism, we are given an unmerited grace, that seal of the Holy Spirit that we are given at baptism that's confirmed on us at the sacrament of confirmation. We are given the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now, a gift, if you have it under the Christmas tree and you don't open it and use it, it's useless, right? I know for myself growing up, I got really jealous at my third Christmas because my older brother, and again, this is going to date me, most of you kids have no idea what I'm about to talk about, but I got a bike, which as a three-year-old, think, oh yes, a bike. My brother got a Teddy Ruxpin. 
Now, the adults are like, oh my gosh, a Teddy Ruxpin, that's the coolest thing ever. A Teddy Ruxpin was this cartoon character that was a teddy bear that its eyes would move and you'd put a little tape inside of its stomach. Again, this is back before DVDs. This is back before CDs. This is back when VHS was still the thing. And so you take a little tape, you put it in its stomach and you'd hit play and Teddy's mouth would start talking with the story and his eyes would start moving all around. Today, that's kind of like, guys, that's kind of freaky today. But for a three-year-old, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. But I was so jealous that my brother got this toy, and I just got a bike. And I mean, back in those days, it was a bike with the just giant wheels on it, because there's no way that I don't have balance as a 36-year-old adult. There's no way I had balance as a three-year-old kid. <coughs> and so back then, I didn't want a bike. I wanted a Teddy Ruxpin. So when he was done using his gift under the Christmas tree, I took it. Because as any younger brother does, you get older siblings stuff. Those hand-me-down toys, I loved hand-me-downs. I loved being a second brother because I got to play with those toys. And I got to utilize them and, and actually learn from them. But the gift that God gives us of grace is much like that Teddy Ruxpin under the Christmas tree. Or like that bike under the Christmas tree. As any gift is, if we don't first recognize it as a gift unwrapped it, and play with it or use it, it's useless. If I come to you and say, there is one present under the Christmas tree that has a million dollars in it, what are you going to do? You're going to rip through every single package until you can find it, right? Well, that gift of grace that God gives to us on the long scheme is, more, is worth more to us than a million dollars could ever be. Yes, a million dollars can buy a lot of things, but Christ tells us time and time again in Scripture, what have you really gained if you've gained the whole world and lost your soul? Part one. Part two, he tells us everything that you have here, sans love, so lo love is the only thing that you have here that you can take with you when this life is requested from you. So when we die, the only thing we can take with us is love. You can't take relationship, in fact, when you get married, it's till what? Till death do you part, right? That you aren't even married in heaven. When, we, when Christ talks about the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, why does he talk about love as being the one that remains? Well, because we have faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he has opened to us the gates of heaven. So when we die and we get to heaven, we no longer need to have faith in God. Why? Because we are there in the reality. We have hope. Hope in life everlasting. Hope that what God has told us is true. But again, we don't need hope for the next life because we have come face to face with the truth, with the reality that is God. The only thing that remains is love. So for many of us in life, we struggle to look at the sacraments, specifically those sacraments that give us that grace, we start to look at them as gifts. How many people in here, be honest, raise your hand if you enjoy going to confession. I see like a hand and a half. Oh, oh, couple hands, because they're all liars and they gotta go to confession now. No, but the reality is most of us don't like to go to the sacrament of reconciliation, right? Because I don't know about you, I hate, 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 and that's a bad word to use, but I hate very 
dislike using the term, the sacrament of confession. Why? Because for me, when I hear the term confession, I think about being called to the jury stand at a trial and having to put your hand on the Bible and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me God, right? Or if you have to confess something, you get called to the principal's office, you're like, I didn't do it, that's the problem. I didn't do it, that's the problem. We don't want to get called to the principal's office. We don't want to have to go on the witness stand. If you ever played hockey, you don't want to go to the penalty box, In fact, I colloquially called the confessional growing up the penalty box. I only went there when I got in trouble. I mean, you that are in confirmation, how many times have you gone to confession because you got into a fight with your parents and your parents made you go to confession? Anybody? Been there, done that. Ironically, though, that is the best place to go if you're having a bad day. When we focus on it less as the sacrament of confession... And more is the sacrament of reconciliation, the sacrament truly begins to make sense. When I confess, I say something, slap on the wrist, get out, don't do it again. When I go to reconcile, because that's when we break apart the word reconciliation, I want to reconcile my relationship. That's what the word reconciliation means, to reconcile one's relation. Relationship. And so when we go to the sacrament of reconciliation, we are reconciling our relationship with anybody with which we have sinned against. Number one, God. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. First things we say when we go in there, or in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, right? We go in and we profess to God, we are a sinner. We claim ourselves as not being perfect. Why? Because we're not. The world doesn't revolve around me. The world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves, ironically, around the sun, S-U-N, because it should revolve around the sun, S-O-N. And so in our lives, when we go, we go first and primarily to reconcile our relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondarily, any sin that we commit is not just a sin against God. Sin is personal There's no such thing as private sin. Oh, well, if I lock my door, God is the only one that witnesses what goes on behind there. The way that we respond because of sin is a witness to our sins. So even if nobody actually sees what we do behind closed doors, the way that we respond is no longer out of grace, but it's because of sin. We respond no longer out of love, but because out of fear or doubt, which are both at the basis of sin. So anytime we go to the sacrament of reconciliation, we are reconciling our relationship with God, with humanity, and then the hardest one, at least for myself. The hardest person to reconcile with is myself. The hardest person to forgive is myself. I can believe that God can forgive me, I can believe that maybe my friends will forgive me. Truly forgiving myself for putting myself before God, and and we don't normally think about it in these terms, but allowing ourselves to be taken advantage of or taking advantage of others, that is the hardest thing to forgive. 
But Christ tells us, and we hear specifically in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, verse eh, 31 and 32. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We've talked about this in the adult class before, and I've kind of touched upon it in some homilies at Mass. But there's only one unforgivable sin. It's not murder. It's not adultery. It's not rape. The only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But what is blasphemy? Just taking the name of the Lord in vain? Well, blasphemy against the Son of God. That's what that is. That can be forgiven. Should we do it? No. <laughs> but also, any of the other Ten Commandments, we shouldn't go against those either. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the only unforgivable sin, is believing that God does not have the power to forgive my sins. Therefore, I don't ask for his forgiveness. That's it. That's the only unforgivable sin. Anything that you have, are, or will do that is sinful can be forgiven. Satan, though, wants to implant in us doubt and fear, as he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Remember with Adam and Eve, as we talked about a few weeks ago, with Adam and Eve, the basis of those sins that they committed in the garden was that Eve doubted her faith in God. She doubted that what he said was true. Then, because they doubted, they gave in to sin. And then what did they do? They feared being seen as naked in the garden. They were naked with shame. And then they were cast from the garden, of which they were not welcomed back in until when? Until Christ paid the price of sin from a tree on a tree so that we can enter back into the garden. It's kind of amazing when you look at the sim symbolism that is present there, right? And so we look then at, well, who says that, why can priests forgive sin? Where did this even come from? Why do Catholics believe that you have to go to a priest to forgive sins? Have you ever heard that before? You ever thought that before? Why do you have to go to a priest to forgive sins? Because Jesus said so. We go back to that first class, Who is God, we were talking about. And we go back to specifically C.S. Lewis when he talked about who God is, who Jesus is. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, right? In mere Christianity, he said Jesus the person was either a liar. He made it all up. Or he was a lunatic. He was just crazy and out of his mind. Or he's the Lord, which means if he is one of the first two, do whatever you want to within your life. When you die, it's all over. It doesn't matter anyways. But, if Jesus is truly the Lord, then everything that he says, we have to take to heart. That's where that fear and doubt come in for many of us. If Jesus is who he truly says he is, and I don't follow what he asks me to follow, I'm up a creek without a paddle. So we have the sacrament of baptism so we can get through 
be able to respond to God's grace in the beginning, but also the sacrament of reconciliation that is given to us, how often can you go to the sacrament of reconciliation? How often can you go? Thoughts? Every day. You can go every day. In fact, Pope St. John Paul II went to confession every single day that he was the pope. Now, as a seminarian, I looked at that and said, that's what we call scrupulosity. That's what I look at and say, really? You haven't really sinned that bad? You don't need to really count? Yes, we're, we're called to confess in kind and number, but I don't need to know every single time that you have thought a bad thing about every single person. Because that's when we become so scrupulous that we truly can't live our lives. As a priest, though, I began to understand his fervor, his drive to receive that grace of the sacrament. And it's ironically not as a penitent that I realized that, but as a confessor. Many times priests are asked, what is the best part of your week? The number one thing that the majority of priests will say, offering the celebration of the Mass. Do you know what number two is for most priests? Hearing confessions. And that may seem twisted if we look at it differently, right? Oh, Father just wants to get all the good gossip. Why go to the hair salon when all you have to do is go to the confessional, right? Wrong! I don't care what your sins are. And I don't mean that to sound petty. I don't care what your sins are, meaning I'm not going to judge you. I've heard it. I guarantee you there is nothing you can say that A, will shock me, or B, that I haven't already heard. And I've only been a priest for six years. And I look at that not so much as a badge of honor, but as a badge of love. In fact, a few years ago, uh, during the year of the priest, um, Pope Francis said to the priests worldwide, Fathers, if you cannot be compassionate in the confessional, get a desk job. And it's like, ooh, <laughs> touche. Because I don't know about you, but I hated going to confession growing up. I hated going to confession. The only time I would go was during the parish penance rites during Advent and Lent. Anyone else in that mix? Guess what we aren't having during Advent this year? Parish penance rites. But there's some method behind my madness. Yes, there's some madness to it. I get that too. But there's a, real, there's a reason behind it. I want you to experience God's mercy. I want you to know you're forgiven. Many times when we have the penance rites, from the priest's standpoint, it's like going to the fast food line. I don't really want to be called on my sins. I don't really want to change. But I know, and this is a really pre-Vatican II idea and notion of God's mercy, I know that if I die today, I don't know where I'm going to end up. Therefore, I go to confession. How often does the church say you must go to confession. Once a year. If it has been longer than once a year, go to confession. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying it because I love you. 
I don't want you to be condemned. But our words and our actions are what condemn us. If it's been longer than a year, what are you waiting for? Oh, Father, I really don't like to go. I understand. Do you want a check that you can't put a number on? Well, yeah, give me a blank check. This is a blank check for your soul. Christ signed his name on the bottom of it. And the grace that you will receive is better than any gift you can receive here on earth. But we doubt that. We don't have faith in that. And we also have the fear that we're going to mess up again. In fact, one of the number one critiques of non-Catholics towards Catholics, specifically with the the, um, Sacrament of Reconciliation, oh, you Catholics have it easy. You go to Mass on Sunday. You're a horrible sinner Monday through Friday. As long as you go to confession, you can go back to Mass on Sunday and receive communion. They're missing out on that part of the sacrament where we have to be contrite of heart, meaning we have to be sorry for what we've done. But also many times, I don't know about for you guys, but for me going through religious education, I didn't understand what a mortal sin was. Because we talk about venial sins and mortal sins, right? The struggle is we get buried in the minutia and the small details that we miss the point. Sin is sin. And this is where you get priests that differ on one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum in regards to mortal sin. Some priests say every sin you commit is a mortal sin. Some priests say it is impossible to truly commit a mortal sin. Because what a mortal sin does is cuts us off from the ability to receive God's grace. God's grace, again, remember, is a free, unmerited gift that God offers to us. And if there's only one unforgivable sin, would God ever cut me off from his grace? No. But we cut ourselves off from God's grace by committing mortal sins. Now, what makes a mortal sin? And actually, it goes deeper than what makes a mortal sin. What makes me culpable for mortal sin. There's a difference between a sin being a mortal sin and having complete culpability for mortal sin. And we miss that conversation way too many times. I learned this when I was at the high school with the kids at McGinnis. What three components make you completely culpable for a mortal sin? It has to be a sin with grave matter. You have to know that it's wrong, and do it anyways, and you have to be free in your action. If all three of those things you can put a check mark by, you are completely culpable for your mortal sin. And this is why some of the priests say that it's impossible to truly commit a mortal sin or completely be culpable for it, specifically because of, more often than not, the freedom aspect of the culpability when we talk about mortal sin. What is grave matter when we talk about mortal sin? This is where we're like, oh no. For my generation, when we talked about venial sin and mortal sin, this is where we missed the bus. We talked about big sins and little sins for my generation. Anybody else learn that way? Big sins are mortal sins, little sins are venial sins. Any sin against the Ten Commandments is grave matter. You tell a lie. 
you miss mass on Sunday or a holy day of obligation. Um, you don't keep the fast and receive the Eucharist. Um, small things like that that we see as small sins, those are grave matter. You chew gum during mass and receive communion because gum is food whether you spit it out or not. And, and we'll get into that when we talk specifically about the Eucharist in a few weeks. But when we talk about the fast for Mass, what are you to abstain from an hour before receiving communion? Nourishment. Which means you can have medicine and water. So if you're drinking a soda on the way into Mass, if you're drinking coffee before Mass, if you're having bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit before Mass, if you're chewing gum during Mass, you have not kept the fast, you should not receive communion. Now we as, I say Anglos, we as people that grew up with the United States American culture, we don't take receiving communion quite as seriously as our neighbors to the South. Growing up, I never saw anybody not go to communion. Anybody else been like that? If I went to Mass, I was going to receive communion. I didn't realize that I wasn't always in the state of grace to receive communion. I thought, eh, I've got to go. I want to receive communion. That's what you do, right? And not only do you just receive communion, you have to then receive from both species. Even if you have the flu, even if you've got strep, even if you've got COVID, you've got to receive both species, right? Wrong. In fact, there are times, and Christ even says this, it is better for you to go without than to receive and condemn yourself with your actions than to receive the Eucharist unworthily. All of the sacraments go together. And so if you're just receiving communion because you don't want to have the conversation with your parents that, ah, I had gum in the parking lot so I can't receive communion today, or something worse, I would much rather you get up here, put your hands over your chest, and I can give you a blessing at that time. Go to confession afterwards, or go to confession beforehand. As long as we aren't 10 minutes before Mass, you can pull me aside at just about any time and say, Father, I need to go to confession. Padre, confesarme. Si. I can. English or Spanish? <laughs> Prefer English. Tratando en español, pero prefiero inglés. Because my role, again, is not to judge, but to love. So we talk about grave matter, freedom. This is the fun one to talk about when we talk about culpability for sin. What limits someone's freedom? Well, if I come to Terry with a gun to his head and say, Terry, murder your wife or I will murder you, if he pulls the trigger, he is not completely culpable for committing the sin of murder. He's grave matter? Yeah, definitely. Murder. Taking of an innocent life. He knew it was wrong, but he did it anyways. But he was coerced to do so. If your freedom is lessened, your culpability for that sin is lessened. Now that's not to say, hey, anytime I go murder someone, make sure I've got a gun to my head. No, that's not what I'm saying. But many times we are so quick to judge and slow to forgive that we forget how important forgiveness is to living the life of holiness, to truly embracing God's love. That's why during marriage prep, I tell a couple at the rehearsal the night before, 
from now until the moment that you say I do, you may not drink alcohol. You may not take muscle relaxers. You may not smoke anything because that can limit your ability to make a clear I do moment. Therefore, you aren't answering in freedom. The same way for me, I uh, once went on a confirmation retreat, which I will never mandate this, but I went on a confirmation retreat one time where they mandated everybody must go to confession during this retreat. Well, you've just invalidated the sacrament. Congratulations. If you are coerced into the sacrament, parents, if you coerce your children and they don't, they aren't sorry for what they've done, it does some to invalidate that sacrament. Now, what percentage of that is, that's between you and God. I don't know. But it does lessen some of the validity because you have then been coerced into that sacrament. You guys understand the difference between them with the freedom and grave matter? And knowing right from wrong, that's your Germany cricket on your shoulder. Always let your conscience be your guide, right? We learned that from Pinocchio. It's been out as long as most of you guys have been alive. Maybe a couple of you guys that grew up before it, but that doesn't count. <laughs> You've known the story. We know that our conscience is ultimately God speaking to us and through us through the person of the Holy Spirit, an advocate and guide that is given to us because of the first Pentecost. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he said, I will be with you always until the end of the age, and I will leave the Holy Spirit kit, the Holy Spirit kit, the Holy Spirit as advocate and guide to help you along the journey. So, why do we go to priests for confession? Jesus, in the upper room at Pentecost, when the Spirit descended upon the apostles, what were the words that Christ spoke? He was talking very specifically, and I don't have it pulled up here because I'm a bad priest. Actually, I'm a good priest because I don't have the scripture. No, that's not, that's not true. Um, <clears throat> when the Spirit descended upon them, Jesus said, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. So Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, gave the power to forgive sins to humanity. Are you with me so far on that? Gave it to the apostles. After Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, what was one of the first things that the apostles did after Judas was no longer one of the apostles? They chose one to fill the numbers. And what did they do? They laid hands upon him, bestowing upon him the same powers that Jesus bestowed upon them. The first bishops of the church, the first priests of the church, their descendants, and their descendants, and their descendants, and their descendants are the cardinals, bishops, popes, priests of today. So Archbishop Coakley, when he ordained me as a priest and laid his hands on me, gave me the power through Jesus Christ's name to forgive sins because he was given that at his own ordination to a priest who was then given that by another bishop and another bishop and another bishop and another bishop all the way back up to Jesus. So why do we go to priests to have our sins forgiven? 
Because Jesus gave us that model because we truly believe that Jesus is the Lord. With me so far. So if Jesus is the Lord, Jesus gave the power to forgive sins to humanity, to men. <coughs> That's why we go to a priest. Well, do I have to go to a priest for my sins to be forgiven? Trick question. Being your sins, technically, no. We can always go to the Lord and say, God, forgive me for my sins. The problem is, we are tactile learners. We have to see, touch, taste, hear, feel to actually accept reality. I don't know if you are, but that's how I am. I have to hear the words, your sins are forgiven, to believe that God can forgive me. <laughs> to forgive myself, I still got to work on that. But also, <clears throat> did you know that there is a time, every time we go to Mass, that your venial sins are forgiven? You know that? We talked about that when we had that teaching Mass that we had earlier this year. And it's called the Penitential Act, where let us call to mind our sins so as to prepare ourselves to celebrate these sacred mysteries. The reason I leave so much time there, I want you to call upon your sins and reflect upon them and ask God to forgive you for them. And then what do we do? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. What are the words of the priest? May Almighty God have mercy on us. Forgive us our sins and bring us to everlasting life. If you bring your venial sins to Mass, since we must be in the state of grace to receive the Eucharist, those sins are forgiven. Does that mean if I commit venial sins, I only have to bring them to Mass? No. We should confess any sins in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. What sins must we confess in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, though? Mortal sins. Well, again, not just talking about the culpability of it, but what makes a mortal sin? Have you gossiped behind your neighbor's back? AKA, have you borne false witness? Have you thought evil things? Have you thought lustfully? Have you acted lustfully? Have you cussed someone out? Have you murdered someone in either action, word, or deed? Have you kept holy the Sabbath? This is the one that always causes consternation. Did you go shopping on the Sabbath? Technically, we're not supposed to work on Sundays. I get an exemption because I have to work on Sundays. Which means if you go out to eat, if you go to Walmart, if you go to, we don't have Dairy Queen here, if you go to Brahms, technically, we are committing sin. Now, we, we can get into that a whole other time because I can whole talk about that. <laughs> I've had to have a whole class about that before. But many times we look at it as, well, it wasn't a bad sin. I just told a white lie. It's my wife's fault that I, that I lied to her and said the dress looks pretty. If, it, it, wives, if you go to your husband and you ask how that dress makes you look, and they say anything besides, oh, it looks great, honey, you're going to smack them. If they lie to you and say, oh, your dress looks great, honey, God's going to smack them. Don't put them in that situation. Don't do it. But we do it all the time, don't we? All the time. We don't even think about how we set people up to fail. But the Lord continually has mercy on us. The Lord continually loves us. Since there's only one unforgivable sin, 
One of the things that people say then many times is, okay, you got me. I can go to confession to a priest. Yes, the church asked me to do it once a year, preferably during the time of Lent or Easter. Okay, got you there. But I don't like to go. I don't want to go. Guys, I'm telling you, as an adult, there's a lot of things that you don't like to do and you're not going to want to do. I mean, there's this whole new hashtag that came up in the last 15 years. It's called hashtag adulting. Or as my generation would have said it, suck it up. There's a lot of things we don't want to do in life, but we're called to do as members of the human family. And we struggle there still to see how could God possibly forgive me? How could God possibly love me when I struggle to love myself? That's actually one of the hardest things for us forgiving ourselves in the sacrament of reconciliation. How could God ever love me? If he really knew what I did, I hate to break your, to burst your bubble. The Lord sees everything. He knows what you've done. And guess what? He still loves you. He knows what you're going to do, and guess what? He still loves you. God's love is, and this is a big word, God's love is immutable, unchanging, which means if God only creates things that he loves and you have been created, got to follow me in, in, in the logical process here, or for those of you who are in geometry, these are why we do logical proofs in geometry, because it wants us to get thinking in a logical term, if God only creates things he loves and he's created you, guess what? God loves you. And God loves you so much that he continues to give us the ability to receive his grace, to turn away from our sins until we have no more time. And Christ shows that to us as he's hanging on the cross. We hear this story every year during Holy Week, where you've got the good thief, which I don't know how he got that name, but he's, but he's a good thief. Not a bad thief, but he's a good thief. But the good thief is there and says, I deserve to be up here. I'm sorry for what I've done. What does Jesus say to him? Believe me, today you will be with me in paradise. That's where he, that was like the original deathbed confession. It was on the cross, right? Why do we wait so long? We'll talk about this when we talk about the sacrament of anointing. Do not wait. Because you're relying on me, a human, to get there in time. Sometimes it's impossible. If you know you have something coming up, err on the side of mercy. Err on the side of time. You guys know my schedule, because I tell you guys my schedule probably more openly than I probably should. I'm in the city the next three days. If you need to go to confession, I'll be here afterwards. Next Wednesday through Sunday, I'm going to be in Indianapolis with some of our youth for NCYC. We still have spots available. If you are, I believe it's over the age of 14 or in ninth grade, we have spots for you if you want to go. But I'm going to be gone. And then I get back and I'm going to be gone all of Thanksgiving week to give thanks to my family for putting up with my crap. <laughs> and my reward is I get to fly out to Florida and go to Disney World on Thanksgiving because that's actually what's going to happen that week. So in the next few weeks, if something happens, I'm out of pocket. I can call Father Bala. I can call Father Swami. 
But if they aren't here, we're out in the middle of nowhere, guys. Our closest parish is Clinton. 25-minute drive, 25-mile drive. Next is Weatherford. Then it's El Reno. El Reno's a good hour drive. Now, I'd call Father Lance Warren in a heartbeat to try and get him out here, but I'd call Father Kelly before him and Father Bala before him. I'd like to know who's around me, so if in case of emergency I can't be there, I can make sure you're taken care of. But why do we always wait for those emergencies to happen? And then there's one other thing that we struggle with with confession. I don't trust my priest. I don't trust that if I confess my worst sins, that he won't look at me differently. This is where we talk about the seal of confession. One of my favorite things to talk about, which may sound a little weird. In fact, in our confessional, there's a statue in there of St. John Nepomuk. Did you know that? The parish we have in Yukon, named after St. John Nepomuk. There's a story of St. John Nepomuk. That he is the patron of the seal of confession. Because when he was a priest in Prague, now Czech Republic, back there, I don't know what it was called, but it was the city of Prague. The king of Prague, good King Wenceslaus, ironically, I believe it was. We sing the song about good King Wenceslaus went down on the feast of Stephen. But the king, I don't think it was actually Wenceslaus, the king went to him and said, I believe my wife is cheating on me and having an affair. Hear her confession and prove me wrong. So, Father Napamuk at that point hears her confession. And the king comes to John Napamuk and says, What did she confess? <laughs> the seal of confession, I, I can't break that seal. Well, if you don't tell me what she confessed, it's your life. And he wasn't playing. He even took him to the bridge in downtown Prague, tied his feet to an anvil and said, this is your last chance. Tell me what she confessed or you're sleeping with the fish tonight. Your, your Highness, I'm sorry. My eternal soul is worth more than anything you can do to me. That is how important the seal of confession is. If I, as a priest, break the seal of confession, whether you know it or not, I am automatically excommunicated from the church. Which means if I, myself, don't have my sins forgiven and I die on the way home, straight ticket to hell. Don't pass go, don't collect $200. I've made that act of choice. The burden in the confession is not on you, it's on me. That's when I talk about it being one of the best things I can do. That's why I say I don't care what your sins are, because I don't want to remember them. Not because they're horrible, sometimes they are, so are mine. But because when I see you, I want to see God's love staring back at me. They say eyes are the window of the soul. How many times do we stare into our own eyes? I don't know about you, but I hate doing it. Because what I see staring back at me is all of my faults, all of my sins, all of those times where I got it wrong. In fact, one of the stories I normally use um, about how important the seal of confession is, and this has actually come up in the courts in the U.S. recently, um, and, and in other countries, the reason that a lot of priests are in prison is because they refuse to break the seal of confession. 
In the 21st century world, there are priests in prison today because they won't break the seal of confession. Get that through our minds. That's how important this is. It's not just something that happens in a long, in a place long, long, far away, back in the good old days. This still happens today. That men who have put their lives at your service put their lives to the service of your sins as well. I don't know about you, but that just gives me chills when I think about it. That is what it means to truly live a life of holiness. We talked this week about vocations. We got, I talked specifically about the vocation to the priesthood a lot because, well, I'm a priest. It's the one I know. Try and talk a lot about marriage because it's the one I grew up with. But we also have heroic examples of those who are consecrated virgins. Heroic examples of monks and nuns and sisters who have come from our parish that have laid their lives down to pray for your souls. Now that's different, yes, than specifically the seal of confession. But what are you willing to die for? That's a question we should ask ourselves. Because at some point, you may be asked about it. There's a movie that came out, I want to say four or five years ago, called Silence. It was a heart-wrenching movie to watch. First of all, because I love movies and there was no background track. So it was silent, pretty much in the, the whole movie. No music, no anything, just... But it was Adam Driver and... Who's the guy that played, not this Spider-Man, but the last Spider-Man? Um, Adam Garfield. Adam Garfield, Adam Driver, and um, the guy where you take his daughter and I will find you, and I will, you know who I'm talking about? That guy? Liam Neeson, yes. So Liam Neeson, Adam Driver, so you've got Kylo Ren, You've got Ra's al Ghul from the Batman movies early in the 2000s, and you've got the guy who plays Spider-Man, all playing three Catholic priests as missionaries in Japan, trying to convert people that want nothing to do <laughs> with the faith. In fact, most of them are given the opportunity to apostatize. Say that what you're teaching is wrong, we will spare you of your life. We talk about the martyrs of the Asian martyrs, right? We talk about them every year. This is based on their life stories. We see in a very just heart-wrenching moment these men giving of their lives, praying that they're planting seeds. Some of those seeds take generations to bear fruit. Do you know where the fastest-growing Catholic populations are today? Not in Europe. Not in America, not in Mexico, India, Africa, and Asia. Fastest growing. In fact, one of the joys of my last assignment at Corpus Christi, I got to come face to face with um, refugees from Burma, Myanmar. First generation, longest one has now been there, I think, for 12 years. And just to see these people of faith that came to a different country, didn't speak the language, didn't speak the culture, completely different, and came in fear of their lives. When I got moved here in January, I mentioned a little bit about the military coup going on in Myanmar. 
there was a three-month silence, a cone of silence over the country. No media in or out, no phone, no internet, no communication. Father Titus, my associate, was a priest from there that we got for the Burmese community. He then became the bishop's right-hand man in the United States. Every state in in Oklahoma, every state in the U.S. has a community from his community. And he then became the liaison. So during COVID, he made five trips throughout the nation to go visit these communities that once a year get to have mass in their language. They can understand what's going on. This isn't Oklahoma City. This isn't, again, other parts of the world. We struggle between mass in English, mass in Spanish, mass in German. They have 27 dialects in their country. That it's different than talking like Southern and Northern in the US, where we have some slang. These are people that live 10 miles from each other that can't communicate with each other. We have two priests in our archdiocese from Burma. Father Benjamin, who was in Blackwell and is now at Epiphany, and Father Titus. Outside of Burmese, they can't speak to each other. But unlike in Africa, where Swahili is the unifying language, Burmese is the elitist language. Priests learn it because they need to be able to celebrate Mass anywhere in the country. He speaks the Zopao language. I had to even Google what... There are no books, English to Zopao and Zopao to English. I couldn't even try to learn the language. I felt so much like I was in the footprints of Father Stanley Rother, who went down to Guatemala and had to learn the Sutuhia language. This same Father Rother that couldn't learn Latin in seminary and almost got kicked out, went to a country where the language was almost dead and not written, learned the language, celebrated mass the language, helped translate scriptures into that language. When we do what God calls us to do, he gives us what we need to do it. As I've said since I got here, I know none of you will believe it. I grew up as an introvert. I don't like to talk. I don't like to talk in crowds. In fact, for my first year as a priest, I had a script in front of me and the death grip on the podium. I can't do that on this one. But I've gotten away from the podium because I was relying too much on myself and not enough on God. And that's many times when we fall to sin. Jesus, I trust in you. Do you, though? Do we, though? Do we think about it? And I know some of you guys are in sixth grade and seventh grade. Eh, this is old people things. I don't have to think about that. You guys are the church. This church has no future without you at all. And there are too many churches, Catholic, non-Catholic, Christian, that don't have you in it. And so the church is dying. These beautiful cathedrals built in Europe are museums that don't have pastors anymore. Notre Dame Cathedral, before it burned. One of the most beautiful churches in the world, right? You've been in Mass at Notre Dame. It is one of the most gut-wrenching moments you can experience. We go there for what? For Mass. In fact, during, I think it's First Friday, I think it is, for Mass, they have on display a portion of the crown of thorns. 
like the crown of thorns. And we're just there in adoration of my goodness. These witnessed to that horrendous event that saved my soul. And there are people walking around taking pictures and talking all the way through Mass. Because it's a museum. St. Peter's Basilica. Rome. Well, actually, Vatican City. In the middle of Rome. They will only allow certain people in for Mass, during Mass. You have to stay in your specific places. Why? Because a lot of people want to go to take pictures because they're tourists. Because it's one of the most beautiful churches in the world. Well, they want to go to see the Pieta by Michelangelo or the Sistine Chapel or all of these monuments to human achievement when the most beautiful monument is on the altar, on a simple altar. Now, it's not simple there. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's ridiculous. But the same Mass that's celebrated there is celebrated here. Now, I have to admit, like when I was there and I got to celebrate Mass, on the tomb, like not like next to the tomb, but on the actual top of the tomb of Pope St. John the 23rd, I was just, huh? But I was also surrounded by the history of the faith, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. And when we talk about our vocations, we have to take them seriously. Why do so many marriages end in divorce? Because people don't take marriage seriously. People don't, don't take dating seriously. If you believe you have a vocation to marriage, date. If you don't, don't. The only reason you should be dating is because you're looking for your future spouse. If for any other reason you're dating, you are then potentially injuring that person finding their future spouse. In fact, and I'll end with this kind of tangentially, my first year as chaplain of Bishop McGinnis, um, they had a, a freshman retreat where the senior girls talked to the freshman boys, and then, and then they talked to the freshman girls, and the senior girls talked to the freshman boys and the freshman girls. And I had just gotten done talking to the freshman girls, and I went into the freshman boys talking to the, to the senior boys, and one of the freshmen asked, how do I get with a girl? As I walked in the room, I said, I got this one. They went, huh? I said, that question right there is why you will probably have a nasty divorce. They're like, huh? We're freshmen. What are you talking about? Divorce. You guys will learn how to treat your future spouses by how the people you date right now treat you and how you treat them. If you don't love them, and you love them, they will have those wounds in their hearts when they say I do to their future spouses. If you don't believe me, ask the generations that have gone before you. And, and I talk about that seriously because marriage is such a serious vocation. Any call from God is serious. Vocation to priesthood is serious. Vocation to consecrated life is serious. Vocation to marriage is serious. But we live in a world that doesn't want to take anything seriously. But I do. I take you guys seriously. I love you so much to be vulnerable. I, you guys know more about me than you probably know about the person you're dating. 
Kind of weird, I know. But I talk to you about my flaws, about the ways that I've failed, the ways that I've learned. Why? Because I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I did because I had to learn by making my own mistakes. My older brother, I refused to learn from his mistakes. I thought I had to make my own. I was wrong. The hardest thing that your parents can do for you is love you the same way that God loves you. God loves you so much that he will allow you not to respond to it. The biggest fear that these parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles have for you is that you'll be hurt. They don't want to see you in pain. Does anybody want to see anybody in pain outside of like sadists? (laughs) Probably not. But we don't take it seriously. We don't think about it kind of circling back around, when we talk about the sacrament of reconciliation, that's why I love it so much as a priest, on both sides of the confessional. Because I get to experience God's grace, and then I get to be a witness to it. When I see you at your best and at your worst, what I really see is a child of God struggling to live that life of holiness. That's who we're all called to be, striving for perfection, knowing that we may never truly attain it. Got time for about one or two questions. Any questions? Adults, this is where they learn they don't have to ask questions, I'm telling you. Yeah, Brina. Half to purgatory? Okay, so if you, if you go to confession and your sins are forgiven, do you still have to pay the punishment for those sins in purgatory? Let me get back to you on the answer because it's, it, it's, it's a bigger answer than a quick yes or no. Um, but I'll get back to you on that. Please remind me of that, Verena. Great question, though. Purgatory does exist. Someone asked last week, when did the doctrine of limbo go away? I said, well, it never existed, so, ne- so always? I don't know. That was a great question last week. Limbo doesn't exist. We never believed in limbo. The only place that limbo exists is when you go skating and you're going under the pole. That's it. Do, 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 do. That's it. The adults are like, I know exactly what you're talking about. They're like, skating? What is that? All right, guys. Before we go, let us stand up. We're going to pray, and I'll let you guys go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you praise and thanksgiving for this night where we're able to come together to talk about your mercy, your love, your forgiveness. Watch over us, your children, created in your image and likeness. Help us to see in each other, through each other's eyes, that are those windows of the soul, your love staring back at us, that we may be that love to each other we see. Help us to know your love, to serve your will, and to return to you on the day that you call us home. We ask all of these things in your son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Get out.